in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, and we are going to do a brand new predictions episode. You may remember that the last episode I played was a rerun from 2011, where Chris Paulette and I decided to kind of guess what the internet would be like in about five years' time. Well, now we're going to look another five years into the future, and Chris could not be here, but I brought on a good friend of mine, a peer, a guy who works for CNET, a very clever dude who's got it all together, Ayaz Akhtar. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for being on the show. And Ayaz is sounding very formal, but trust us, we, we're we buddies. We often give each other the business, as it were. Of course, of course, Mr. Strickland, we always give each other the business. <laughs> uh, those 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 plain envelopes filled with dollar bills will continue to come to you, Ayaz. Uh, so Excellent. we we wanted to take a look and kind of just have a casual conversation of what we think the Internet and our interactions with the Internet might be like in another five years. So in 2021. And uh, we're just kind of shooting from the hip here. We're not not really consulting any gurus or anything like that. Uh, but we did come up with a bunch of little questions that we thought would be good starters for this kind of thing. And one of the points we made in the 2011 podcast that Chris and I did was that we both felt that uh, mobile browsing was definitely going to be increasingly important, that we would see desktops and laptop traffic on the Internet get surpassed by mobile devices. And in fact, that did happen. And uh, it wasn't like we were sticking our necks really far out or anything. It was pretty clear that that was the trend uh, even when we started back then. Now, Ayaz, do you think that's going to be something that we'll see continue, that will will mobile devices continue to be one of the most uh, important, maybe the predominant way that we uh, interact with the Internet, at least on a on an active scale? Yeah, I think the mobile devices, I mean, they've shown how important they've been over the years. And the thing is, for a lot of people, their phone is their first real personal computer. So what I'm expecting is essentially laptops and desktops not as important but we might actually have the ability to have in five years now where you have your phone. It's your brain for all your other little systems because I think other smart devices like watches, glasses, other devices and form factors that we haven't even thought up yet, those things will be around, but they're really going to be powered by your phone. Mm, right, yeah, so that that makes sense. Like even stuff with Google Glass, uh, that was something that you used a Bluetooth connection with the phone. The phone ended up doing most of the processing. The glass was just kind of a uh, interface and display and you still were relying upon the actual connection with your phone to grab the data from the cloud. And that does make sense. I mean, you that way you remove the need for the more powerful processors and the various antenna that you would require to, to tap into those networks. You can offload that. You just need that Bluetooth uh, interface in order for it to, to communicate with the devices, the real brain. Also, I'm noticing, I just noticed recently a a video that kind of blew my mind because it reminded me of something we saw at CES many years ago. And it was a video of a new product where you use your smartphone to act as the processor for what was really just a terminal, but it looks like, you know, a laptop computer. And you dock your phone into it. And that essentially ends up being the the brains behind your computer. And I can't remember you you might, Ayaz, I don't know, but I can't remember the name of the 
the thing that was essentially that same idea from several years ago uh, where your your smartphone and uh, could just dock into a docking station and power a laptop. Um, to me, it was interesting to see that idea come back again because it didn't seem to go anywhere after that initial CES debut. But it does kind of fall into that same idea that the the smartphone will be kind of the the center of a of a hub of devices, all of which will rely very heavily on it. Yeah, the device I think you're talking about is the Moto Atrix. Yes, which is a, a phone that would plug into a, a docking station that kind of makes it a laptop. It wasn't elegant at all. It didn't work with every single docking station. You had to get a proprietary thing, so that kind of ticked people off. I know the Kickstarter you're talking about, or Indiegogo, I'm not sure which crowdfunding site it is. Uh, but I mean, we're also, I would imagine in five years, we would have more smart devices that can be on their own. But I still think that having all the power and all the brains on a singular device driving the other, the other devices makes more sense because, like you were mentioning, other radios, other antennas, other battery concerns, to have all of that in each self-contained object, you're talking about a lot of items you have to keep charged all the time. It seems like, I don't know if five years is enough time for this to really get mature. Maybe 10 years from now, not going too far, but if battery technology moves ahead, maybe we would see these devices that are, I guess, cloud-connected. So the brain is still a computer somewhere. It's just nowhere near you. Right. I, I think also another important element to take into account is cost. And by having your phone be the primary brains behind all these different devices, it helps bring the cost down of each of those individual devices. They don't need as many expensive components. And that will make adoption uh, less difficult, right? It's still going to be a barrier, obviously. It's any time we're talking about technology, there's a barrier of entry that's there. Um, not everyone can afford to do it, but by going that uh, that route, where your phone remains the primary uh, processing unit of all these different devices, you can at least create a suite of technologies that aren't prohibitively expensive for all but you know the the top of the one percenters. Yeah, but you're t- talking about a lot of silos, right? You can probably like an Apple silo. You'll have an Android silo or a Samsung silo. There's things that you can't just mix and match your accessories. You're just going to have to get one company's to make it work well. I, I still see that happening because sometimes I think about in the old days how no standards would ever happen. I couldn't imagine a- actually having one standard port for electrical outlets if this was privatized the way it is now. It's like, well, USB, A, B, C, how about 3.1? Just it seems so wonky. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great point. I mean, it's and that kind of ties into the next question that I have on our list, uh, the idea of silos and this uh, whether you have interoperability between different you know families of technologies or if it's all within one group one of the things we've seen kind of come to prominence over the last year or two is this idea of the digital personal assistant now in the 2011 episode chris and i talked about how voice recognition was going to become more important but it wouldn't take over as our primary means of interacting with our technology for various reasons i mean if you want to search anything that's remotely personal in nature, you probably don't want to speak it out loud in public. Also, you don't want to make people think you're crazy as you're talking to absolutely no one uh, visible at any rate. Um, but we're starting to see them really get more more traction these days, whether it's Apple's Siri or Amazon's Alexa or Google's Assistant. 
you know, we have lots of different examples. Do you think those are going to continue to get more uh, sophisticated? Are are we going to see more integration into various devices, not just the standalones or the smartphones, but perhaps other things as well? Well, I could see people getting very used to talking to the Internet in general. Like you might think now it might look a little crazy that you're talking to yourself. Although these days you see somebody talking to themselves in the street, you're like, do they have a Bluetooth headset or not? Because it used to be 20 years ago, you're like, oh, you're just nuts. Now it's like, oh, you might be having a conversation. But there's a generation of kids growing up talking to smart speakers like the Echo, like Google Home when that comes out, and when Apple goes ahead, when there's that rumor that they're going to have their own smart speaker. I see that kind of interface and that natural language really being more important. Now, maybe you're not necessarily talking to your watch, but you would might be writing the same kinds of questions that you would say because the the way everything is changing with deep learning, the chance in five years, I'm really hoping in five years, that you're able to just ask a simple question without having to have all of these modifiers that are search engine optimized. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, without having to parse your language in a way that search engines know what it is you're actually asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to have that natural language recognition. I think we've we've definitely come a far way over the last decade, definitely, uh, with natural language, where you know it used to be that you could do a Google search for a particular string of terms and come up with a page of results and think, this isn't remotely what I was hoping to find. And then you just go and rearrange the order of words that were in your Google query and come up with different results and see, oh, this is, uh, I just have to think the way the computer thinks. Uh, Once we get away from that, where computers are able to interpret the way we think and the way different people think about the same thing, but still bring back relevant results, then we see real uh, advances in that and, and, and a seamless experience when we start interacting with the Internet. I think that is definitely going to improve over the next five years. We've already seen some amazing uh, results as it stands now. I also hope to see more of – one of the things I really like the way uh, Amazon has approached this personal digital assistant um, model is their approach is all about integrating with other systems so that you can control different things within your home even if they were not originally designed to work together through a single interface, right? Like Hue light bulbs are an example. Let's say that I've got Hue light bulbs in my house. Let's say I've got some sort of uh, of uh, internet-connected security system. Uh, maybe I've got a couple of other appliances that are also connected through my, my home network. And with Alexa, assuming that the capability has been built in by developers, I would be able to interact with all of those as opposed to having to go through each proprietary system and interface, uh, which gets extremely clunky. It's kind of like being in front of a, a an entertainment system where you have 12 different remote controls and trying to remember which one goes to what component. Uh, I hope to see more of that because, like you were saying, if we go with a siloed approach, unless you're all in – with one provider, your experience is going to be really fragmented. Yeah, this makes me think about the Internet of Things because I have an Amazon Echo and I've had some smart technologies in my house, like smart light bulbs and things. And most people would ask me, like, why would you need a smart light bulb? And these are just little fancy ways to make my apartment more personalized. But when you have an Echo, you have a brain that can talk to multiple devices, you start thinking what other devices you can get. So I'm expecting in five years, a lot of people will be very aware 
of the good uses for connected devices. Because like a connected light bulb, again, is a very strange idea at first. But when you get used to it, you're like, wait a minute, why didn't this happen before? So I'm expecting a lot more dumb things to get a lot smarter in five years. Yeah, and and you know we've we've seen this is a a progression that starts with some kind of you know uncertain moves. Again, going back to CES, I, I love talking about CES because that's kind of like the proving grounds for these new technologies. Typically, a technology will start to kind of creep in, and then the next year it'll be. Uh, almost everywhere, and then maybe three more years it'll be to a point where people will actually want it, right? Because we've seen the smart technology move into various appliances for the better part of a decade now. And in many cases, those early implementations were either short-sighted or not terribly useful. Uh, but I, as people are learning how to interact and as developers are learning you know, what people expect from their technologies – we're seeing that improve over time. I think in 2021, Internet of Things is is going to continue going strong. It it isn't just a fad or a buzzword. Uh, it is going to be a pervasive technology that uh, surrounds us and binds us like the force. Um, it also has some potential for some some negative stuff as well. Not just the idea of making our lives easier, but we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, in a little bit. So one of the other elements I have here on our list is this question about, again, getting kind of to that fragmented experience idea. The rise of the app. That was one of those things that, that Chris and I didn't really touch on. We didn't talk about apps. I don't think either of us had really figured out how important apps were going to be uh, in general. And apps on smart devices, on, on smartphones and mobile devices in particular, have become one of the most important stories in technology over the last few years. Uh, companies can spring up overnight and become incredibly successful with the, the right app. A lot of companies out there are banking on that success. Many of them are failing. Um, and, and it's weird because it also creates this very siloed approach to how you access and interact with the internet, uh, particularly apps that are related to content where, you know, you might ask the question, why do I use this app versus use uh, a more universal interface like a browser? Do you think that we're going to continue to see, uh, you know, a wide variety of apps moving forward? Or do you think that's a bubble that will burst sometime between now and 2021? I don't see apps necessarily going away. I can see a lot of like hypervisor style apps like we're talking about with the Echo where it controls lots of different things. I could see a lot more apps that control other apps, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like things like right now we have things like Hootsuite, which can access your different Twitter accounts, Facebook and all that other information. So I could see that happening, which is a little strange if you think about it, because a browser should be able to handle it. But apps on their own. They offer so much control to the companies that I think that that's not going anywhere. Because the other thing is you can create a lot of things that are offline that you couldn't do in a browser. I think that's one of the bigger things. Unless in five years the Internet wirelessly or is that connectivity is always around, you still have to deal with being offline. And if you don't have an app, there's a good chance there's no way a browser is going to work unless there's some kind of cached feature, which isn't something that really works so well right now. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, for example, I've got, I've got an app that I use for, for, uh, podcatching to, to listen to the various podcasts I subscribe to. And I can either stream stuff directly from the internet 
to my headphones and that way I can listen live or I can download an episode and listen to it even if I'm offline, which of course is useful if you're going to be like on a long flight or something and you don't have in-flight Wi-Fi. That's a really useful uh, um, feature. So I didn't really think of it that way, but that is interesting. I would I would love to see some more experimentation with apps. Sometimes it gets a little tricky, but you know something that would um, allow you to maximize the reach of your various music services would be nice because not all artists have work all in one uh, or all in the same music service. And being able to go through all of them simultaneously so that you can listen to what you want to listen to, uh, you know, subscribing to whichever services you want, but being able to search all of them at once would be really nice instead of having to, you know, go into one and then, oh, wait, that's right. That musician's label doesn't work with Spotify or Pandora or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I, that is interesting. I do think, I do think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning <laughs> between now and 2021 where we will see a lot of apps, um, kind of collapse in on themselves. I think we're going to see on the investment front some capitalists, venture catalysts, uh, uh, being a little more careful with which apps they jump in and back. Uh, I just don't see it as sustainable in the long run for uh, the, the kind of approach we're seeing right now where, you know, it, it seems like every week you're getting one or two stories about uh, some brand new app debuting with incredible amounts of financial backing uh, and, and no business plan to speak of. Uh, that That cannot continue indefinitely. So I think there's probably going to be a bit of a shaky bubble kind of moment between now and 2021. Uh, hopefully by 2021, it will have settled back down so that we can have productive, uh, useful apps continue. I don't, I don't want to see anyone tank. I just don't think that the way things have been going is uh, sustainable in the long run. The other thing I was thinking is that the way I've seen companies talk to developers, the idea that you write one app and it runs on multiple platforms, Android, Chrome OS, or if you run a Windows app, it runs on every Windows thing. And iOS, at some point, has to have some kind of ties to OS X or Mac OS. I would imagine in five years, these apps that are just kind of like, oh, it's only for my phone, or it's only for my watch, or it's only for whatever, these these apps will actually be much more powerful than when you can install them on full-fledged computers, or you can have the same experience or slightly modified experiences for different screens. I think that's the future we're headed for. So we're not going to lose the apps. We might get more productive apps, mm-hmm. but... I don't see it being this world of the way it is now. It's definitely going to be much more kind of like the way the iOS apps can be iPhone and iPad. I can imagine this happening with all other kinds of apps as well. Yeah, that's something that Microsoft has been pushing for for a long time. I mean, Windows 8 was our first indication that they really wanted to create this universal experience where the the technology the the programs you depended upon would work across multitude multiple platforms uh, seamlessly and we're we're seeing that with a lot of ways that apps are uh designed you know like um Netflix is a great example where you're watching Netflix on one platform you pause your viewing you go you turn on a different platform and you can pick up right where you left off that that's sort of that same idea, this idea that you can have a persistent experience across whichever platform you want. It may be that the interaction with that platform has to be different because it's just a it's you know, it doesn't have the same interface, but the experience you get is as close to being 
universal as you can possibly get. Um, I agree that that's definitely going to continue. And, and by 2021, it'll probably be very impressive, at least to the 2016 versions of us. Maybe the 2021 versions of us will be, you know, totally blasé about it. But, <laughs> but right now we'd be really, we'd really be thrilled by that. Uh, one of the other things we did not talk about in 2011, uh, neither Chris nor I anticipated it, was the rise of Google Fiber. Uh, and seeing Google Fiber come out, uh, I, I, I'm in Atlanta and Google Fiber is currently deploying in Atlanta to the point where uh, lots of different neighborhoods in the Atlanta area are eligible for signing up for Google Fiber. Not me yet, but any day now. Um, so we didn't anticipate Google Fiber showing up. Do you think Google Fiber is actually going to have a disruptive effect on the industry as a whole? Or do you see this as being something that might might be beneficial for uh, certain regions, but that's all we're going to see. We're not going to get uh, a wider effect than that. I think there's going to be quite a wide effect. If, in recent news, Verizon went out and bought AOL and uh, something else. What was the other one? Yahoo, right? Yeah. And essentially, it makes it some kind of digital advertising giant to take on Google. And I loved seeing the news only for the reason that maybe it would get, like, like light a fire under Google and go, wait a second. If those guys are going to be an ISP and they're going to have this kind of content management, why don't we do the same thing considering we're uh, competitors with them? Mm -hmm. So I'm expecting Google to be one of the first to just full-on go head-to-head against a Verizon, against the wireless carriers out there. Because Google Fiber, while it's good, the infrastructure layout just seems to take so long. And they run into a lot of regulation problems. But if they can buy up... You know, essentially the wireless last mile, if that's how this is going to go, I would think they would be one of the companies to do it. And I was trying to figure out, like, what other company do I think in five years would actually have a wireless service? I would say in the U.S. anyway, Amazon could easily become some kind of wireless carrier because their whole model is just to get you to buy products over and over and over again. So if they can stop that one last barrier of, well, I don't have a connection to Amazon. How am I going to do this? Why not do that with not only their fire devices, but any device? Because in the past, they used to have wireless built into their Kindles through other services. There's really not a lot of reasons why a company like Amazon wouldn't enter that fray, especially in my future, by the way. Google's already entered this, and it's going to have enough of a disruption that other companies will no longer be afraid to fight an AT&T, a Verizon, and I guess T-Mobile at the time, because that's usually the biggest fears. Like, if I go against these guys, they won't carry my phones, and then that's going to cause an issue. But when right. there's enough competition, it no longer matters. Well, and, and it's just nice to see any competition at all in that space. At least with the wireless side, you could argue, uh, particularly with the the cellular and the LTE side of things, you could argue that there is at least some competition here in the United States. When you get to home internet access, like wired internet access, that level of competition starts to drop off dramatically. Depending on where you live, you may not have any options other than a single provider. Uh, In my case, I have one decent option, at least from a data speed, although anyone who listens to a show that I as and I do knows that its reliability is more than a little questionable. By the way, I as I don't know if I'll be able to record this week. We'll find out. Uh, the but but seeing actual competition there is really encouraging because it suddenly forces these major companies that 
haven't had to worry about that kind of thing for more than a decade to really seriously consider it, especially seeing as how ones like Comcast are in the business not just of providing Internet service, but are also cable television companies. And that business, I didn't really think about touching on that because it's not it's related to Internet, but it's not truly Internet. That business has been uh, really kind of teetering on this edge of uh, a precipitous drop for a couple of years, and we expect that to happen any day now, really. So uh, seeing that kind of pressure come up is encouraging to me because I hope that it will ultimately benefit the consumer, where you have real options, not just options in name only, for real good uh, internet access, like decent speeds. And um, it'd also be nice to not see any more data caps. I'm really hoping the data caps go away. That was something we touched on in our 2011 episode. And uh turned out that that ended up being a real big issue, particularly since we're seeing more and more streaming video these days at higher qualities than ever before. You're talking about things like 4K and uh, and perhaps even higher resolution video moving forward. Uh, data caps are a real problem. Do you think that's going to be something that will persist? Do you think companies are going to hold on to data caps for as long as they possibly can? Or do you think that demand and competition will ultimately make data caps a thing of the past by the year 2021? There's what I want to happen and what I think is going to happen. Okay, let's let's hear what you want to happen. <laughs> what I want to happen is I would like there to be enough bandwidth that there's basically these companies are auctioning off or selling to you various speeds. Okay, you can pay you know x amount of money for up to 10 megabits per second. You can pay y for 30. You can pay z for one gigabit wireless. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to get this giant fire hose of speed. Like we're going to give you one gigabit per second, but your cap is five gigabytes. So you're gonna run <laughs> through this now. Now gigabits to gigabyte. There's there's obviously a change there. Yeah. But th- that's the thing that keeps making money. It's actually relatively simple to explain to people as well when it comes to caps. Um, I I don't see that being changed unless, like we talked about, if other companies get into the game where there's enough competition. Maybe somebody can disrupt that marketing. But the way it is now, it seems like the old old ideas was unlimited and we'll have unlimited and then people would never let them go because of the changes that have happened i think caps are here to stay at least only on the wireless space on the wired side the home based stuff i still think if they have caps at all they'd be very very high kind of a ludicrous number that's very hard to hit because that's how it's sold at home it's about speed that's how you get home internet so i still see wireless companies just sticking to caps one particular wired company i still think will do caps you know the company. Yeah, is it the same one I was referring to earlier? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know that company well. Too well, some might say. Uh, yeah, I, I I really hope that the the push from Google Fiber will ultimately make the wired data caps a thing of the past as companies have to differentiate themselves more in order to win over customers. Uh, rather than run the risk of seeing their customer base deplete into nothing. That's my hope. My fear is that this is just going to continue to be an issue in 2021 and that people, even though they'll have the access to much better um, Internet service, 
will not be able to take full advantage of it because of those things, or at least not without paying a hefty fee for either the unlimited package, which I'm sure some companies will offer, or you know overage fees because you keep going over the amount that you're allotted per month, uh, somewhat arbitrarily, if not entirely arbitrarily. That's the grumpy old man version of this episode. Uh, let's uh, talk about something that gets me even more angry, net neutrality. So net neutrality, we, we've seen a lot of progress over the last five years. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, happened that Chris and I didn't really predict was the move on an official front to try and reframe cable companies or, or cable providers, internet service providers, I should say, uh, in a way that would allow them to fall under rules that would ensure net neutrality would continue. And we've seen a lot of resistance of that to that idea over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, the companies are fighting this like crazy. What do you think the status of net neutrality will be by 2021? I think it's going to be so much the way it is now. I think that the T-Mobile method that we've seen was basically what we're going to see by everybody. And what I mean by that is there's no prioritization of bits over other ones. However, certain bits do not count against caps. It's almost like bending a rule like crazy without breaking it. Mm. So I think that's how we're going to ride this line because I know when it comes to net neutrality in the United States, one of the ways that companies can say, hey, listen, we can actually prioritize bits is based on network congestion or network management. And as long as you can come up with a reason why you need to do this, a legal reason, it'll make sense to do it that way. But I'm assuming the T-Mobile method is actually the future of net neutrality. It's not, again, it's not prioritization. It's just not counting something towards a cap. So in other words, uh, it's not that you would get faster or more reliable service. Let's let's uh, use a, a fictional approach. So let's say that I've got a a uh, uh, a video service, uh, we'll call it, I don't know, Notflix. So I've got Notflix, but I also am, let's say, a subscriber to uh, Tim Warner. So Tim Warner is my internet service provider. And Tim Warner, that guy Tim, has got the own, his, his own uh, video service that is uh, competing with Notflix. And Tim Warner's service uh, doesn't count against my data cap, but Notflix does. Now, if I were to watch the same movie on either service, I would have, at least in theory, the exact same experience as a customer. Uh, same, same bit rate, all of that stuff. Uh, no buffering, you know, same quality of video. It wouldn't matter. But when it came time for me to pay my bill, I wouldn't have any danger of going over if I was relying on Tim Warner's service than on Netflix, where I might go over because that is still counted against my data cap. Am I capturing what you're you're kind of proposing here? Mostly, except the the concern becomes when Tim Warner has its own content. With with the current example I was making, I was talking about uh, T-Mobile. It doesn't exactly have skin in the game when it comes to music services or whatever. Right. So when you are talking about a, a an ISP that also has a content arm. That's when it gets a little murky. Yeah. However, it's still not prioritization. It's simply not counting data against your cap. And the cap, there's nothing illegal about a cap. Yeah. Right? So that's so I think that is something we will continue to see. And also as we keep seeing wireless companies or ISPs get into the content game and vice versa, 
this is going to get pushed. Now that we're talking about this, this might become the new fight. Can a company that has has two different interests do this kind of not prioritization and get away with it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the easy real-world example of that is Comcast. I mean, Comcast definitely has a vested interest uh, with you know NBC Universal and all this. Uh, they 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 have a huge content arm as well as an internet service provider business, and the two combined, you know, it's it's very easy to bring up the concern of a conflict of interest if you were to prioritize in some way, shape, or form the native content versus stuff that comes from other companies. Uh, I agree. I think we're going to see a lot of really messy fights, some of which may end up being like big news that people like you and I pay a lot of attention to and the general public just grumbles about their cable bill. Um, that's based upon past experience in my case. What about the concept of privacy by 2021? We're already seeing some uh, some struggles out there. We've got so many devices out in the hands of people that have cameras. They're not only capable of shooting video and recording uh, uh, sound as well as just shooting images. Uh, they're not only capable of uploading that stuff later. They can stream it live at this point. And we've had famous examples, recent examples, of that being used to to great effect, uh, sometimes with really disturbing uh, consequences, important but disturbing consequences. But this is also raising up questions of what will privacy be like? What is the expectation of privacy in a world where you are surrounded by potentially hundreds of of live feed video cameras that could broadcast to the entire world. What do you think? It'll be dead. Privacy is dead. dead. In, in, in five years, dead, 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 dead. Uh, the idea of having a reasonable expectation of privacy, when could you possibly imagine a space, other than, I guess, maybe a bathroom, where yeah. do you have a space where you think you have a reasonable expectation that you will not be recorded, where you will not be seen by a camera or live streamed, at this point, in this modern age of 2016, it's getting more and more normal. Yeah, there's a chance that I could be walking around in a store, in a mall, or whatever, and somebody's live-streaming this on Facebook Live. In five years from now, people are going to get way more used to this concept. So this idea, I'm thinking of the legal standard, a reasonable expectation of privacy, that changes yeah. when it comes to reasonability. So when it comes to your face showing up on a billboard for you know not Flix as a, as a user – because you were outside on a phone and somebody saw you on your phone looking at Netflix, that might be used. It could be in terms of service that we can use your image if we get you on the street. There's all kinds of changes because cameras are everywhere. It used to be the fear of, oh, no, Big Brother's watching me. But everybody's watching each other. It can live stream anything at any given time. I don't think privacy is going to be the same kind of great thing we held sacred you know, years ago. Now it's just, then it's going to be in the future. This idea that well, of course, of course we're live streamed. This is just how it is. You know that's the way reality is now, right? Yeah, and it gets even more complicated than that because you also have organizations that are pushing back against this encroaching world of live video. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of 
various police forces around the United States in particular. I mean, this is something that we've seen in other countries, but you're starting to see it in the U.S. where you're seeing more of an opposition to the idea of uh, capturing this stuff on live video. There was a case in Pennsylvania not too long ago in which I believe it was a college student who was using his phone to video police that were gathered outside of a party. And uh, he was detained for that, and there was this whole court case. And eventually the court said in their decision that uh, the right to video uh, police, police officers in a public space – I guess maybe it wasn't a public space because it might have been in front of a, a private house party. But to video police like that uh, is not protected under the First Amendment in the United States unless you are specifically using it to uh, provide meaningful commentary or critique of the police force, which seems to be a pretty major legal decision in my mind, uh, one that I am sure is going to be contested over time. Uh, but but seeing this kind of uncomfortable reaction where law enforcement groups, not, not universally, but in pockets, are opposing to opposing this kind of approach tells me that maybe by 2021 we'll have a point where privacy is dead, 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 Mark Zuckerberg style. But it's not going to be a gentle pathway. We're going to see lots of different reactions, both from official uh, agencies and individuals who are going to protest this, I think, ultimately, as you say, fruitlessly, because I don't think that I don't think you can stop this train now. It's it's moving. It's not. There's no way to derail it. Uh, the question is just how long is it going to take to get to that destination where we've just, you know, come to the conclusion that that you're essentially always on camera. But well, it'll be great. You know, in the future, that means that people will have like throwback parties. You know, be, like there's 90s parties now. In the future, it'll be like privacy parties. Yeah. And there's nobody's got got a phone. You got to chill out and you can't live stream. And it'll be like a thing that people like do, kind of like camping. They decided. We're going to go off the grid or we're going to not live stream just for 30 minutes. I know it's a crazy idea, <laughs> but we're going to be dark for this long. It'll be kind of like the the advertising campaign for Las Vegas about what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's going to be kind of like that. Like, all right, on this weekend, we're not broadcasting what's happening. It's You experience it when it happens. When it's over, it's over, and that's it. Uh, I, that does appeal to me, even as someone who – seems to be surgically attached to his phone. I very like I go through that level of uh distress if I don't have I realize I don't have my phone on me. It it I I go through that panic mode. Uh but it does also sound nice to kind of get away from that if you're making a conscious effort to do so. I don't like it forced upon me. Um so what about uh, related to privacy? What about cybersecurity? Uh obviously we've seen lots of high profile cybersecurity risks and attacks. We've seen a lot of uh, information about various vulnerabilities being exploited. There are, of course, major conferences that are dedicated to both uncovering and demonstrating the uh, power of exploiting vulnerabilities. Uh, I, I honestly think, because I've been asking you to answer the, every one of these questions before I do, it's kind of the safety <laughs> net version, I think uh, this is just going to become one of the most important issues by 2021. And I have no doubt that there will be several uh, major 
major stories that involve cybersecurity failures, possibly even a couple of catastrophic or catastrophic, I should say, catastrophic stories thrown in there. And by catastrophic, I mean things where either it's discovered that uh, there have been uh, uh, foreign agencies spying on very important material. We've already seen examples of that in the past, whether it's in the United States or other countries. We're going to see more of that come to light, I think, over the next few years. And also just other examples of things like corporate, corp, corporate espionage or, uh, you know, whether it's something where one company is acting against another, a government against a company, uh, or um, disenchanted former employees against a company. I think we're going to see a lot more of this to a point where cybersecurity is going to be one of the biggest and most important industries by 2021. What are your thoughts? I think – in some areas, it'll be really important for industry, in, just in general, like when it comes to everyday security, if you work at a corporation, you work at a business, that kind of thing. I just think as a, as with the public consciousness, it'll remain as it, as it has been. We had the whole, here, look, the NSA's got everything on everybody at all times, and it still didn't cause a shift in behavior. Yeah. Now, there might be some new interest in, hey, is my phone, is its fingerprint scanner going to be used against me? Do I have to be conscious when I use my thumb or is my passcode? Can I not give a passcode? Those kinds of questions do come up for the general public. I just think the public consciousness with the connectivity we have now, there's a real ease in just turning off your brain and going, yeah, I know that happened over there, but you know, I really want to check on this live stream. I really want to mess with this app. I want to do this other thing. So while it should be really, really important, and while your privacy and your protect and being protected and your data being protected should be important, you, we see stories all the time about breaches and overreaching by agencies and finding out there's state-sponsored attacks. Yet it's only those who are intrigued or interested in security that are already reading the stories, kind of feeding itself, not exactly touching a hitting a chord with the public i don't know what it would take if the nsa stuff didn't do it i don't know what it would take other than aliens showing up and saying we have docs on you and they'd right. still be more interested in the aliens than the documents uh, i i agree with you in the sense that i think uh the pu- general public will not be more uh attuned to the risks and the the Various problems of cybersecurity and even the or the advances in cybersecurity. I also think the general population isn't necessarily going to be more um, aware and alert and and take proactive steps to better protect their own systems. Whether that means you know something as simple as changing the password on your router to uh, making certain that you're not using the same passwords for various services. Uh, uh, all that kind of stuff, using encryption. I don't think that's going to be a big deal for most people. But I do think on the back end of things, on the actual cybersecurity industry end of things, uh, that's going to be a huge, huge area of growth by 2021. Like, If someone were asking me, like they were interested in technology and they were wondering what area would have you know good, good growth, good potential, I would say cybersecurity is way up there. Uh, it, it's not – I don't think people would necessarily consider it glamorous and a, a lot of folks just don't necessarily understand the importance of it. But based upon the things that have happened – I mean you know, look at the stuff that's happened over the last five years from Stuxnet to 
Uh, you've got uh, the Sony hack, which was huge news a couple of years ago. Um, the Ashley Madison hack, where you had uh, you know uh, essentially blackmail rolled into hacking. Uh, these are big stories, and I think that's just going to continue over the next few years. Which is that's why I feel like it's going to be even bigger by 2021. Not bigger in the sense that people will like the average person is going to talk about it but bigger in the sense that uh, more and more companies and, and government agencies are going to pay a lot more attention to that side of things. Yeah, the other thing is there's a lot of technologies that can take care of the cybersecurity end, even if the user isn't paying attention, like biometrics, like you know, mentioned the fingerprint scanner. There's the Note 7 that's got its new iris scanner. You would think that with that kind of technology, that might help. The public might not care that, oh, look, I can use a fingerprint or use my eyes to unlock something, but that will actually up the security in general because you're not using the same one, two, three, four, five password because people do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a reason why uh, a lot of brute force attacks can be effective, and that's because a lot of people use the same weak passwords. Their entire database is just filled with millions of common simple passwords and that's why a lot of those brute force attacks can be can be uh, ultimately successful it's because people are not practicing good computer security so using biometrics as a means of uh, of of improving that is a step in the right direction i mean obviously no system is completely foolproof but um this this is definitely a, a better step than 12345 uh which is on my luggage um, I've got a question here that I'm just curious what your thoughts are. It's, again, something that we didn't really touch on in the 2011 show. But do you think Internet-based currencies, and I'm specifically thinking of like cryptocurrency, like like Bitcoin, will play a larger role in 2021? Or do you think that that's just something that it's going to be popular with a certain segment of the population but never really grow beyond that? Uh, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I think it's going to stay niche. I mean, it, it, there's nothing demanding that we stop using dollars or euro or pounds. So the idea of having this cryptocurrency that you're mining, something like a, like Bitcoin in particular, where you can keep creating them, it takes a long time and it, and it figures itself out. Have you done an episode on Bitcoin? Yes. Okay, so listen to that episode to fully explain it because I'm not going to do it justice here. But I don't see it being something that would take over, even though we have this increasing globalization when it comes to the Internet. You can get anything from anywhere at any time with any device. That's awesome. But it took a lot of time to get that infrastructure in place. And to introduce a new currency that's going to make it work, I don't see that becoming a bigger deal. I still see it, see it having a minor interest for people who really want to get into it, but I don't see it growing much larger than that. What do you think? I think you're right. I think um, if if there are any, if we see any major state-backed cryptocurrencies, then there's the possibility that that could take off. But then you start asking the asking questions of why bother going through the trouble of creating a cryptocurrency when you could just create various services, things like Google Wallet or uh, Apple Pay, the ideas of uh, like the the transaction services. So it has nothing to do really with currency other than the fact that those are the units with which you, you know, that you use to determine how much you're paying for something. But it's actually a, 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 a wealth transfer system, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. Uh, I think that's what we're going to see continue to grow. We're going to see those services get um, more popular and used in, in – 
and implemented in a variety of different products, uh, including, I mean, wearables being a really simple example. I, I could easily imagine a lot of wearables having that particular capability built in as part of what it does. But I agree with you that the cryptocurrency, I think, will remain the realm of a smaller population. And I, I would also argue that it's those people who they they purposefully try to maintain that, right? I think that those populations don't necessarily want to see a widespread adoption of the currency that they like because, for one thing, it allows that currency to be used for stuff that um, they might not want more attention drawn toward, right? Like some of the more shady or possibly outright illegal things that we've seen Bitcoin used for and other c- cryptocurrencies as well. Yeah, the idea it, with, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, it's essentially cash online, an untraceable unit that can be passed from one person to another with, without necessarily being caught with this kind of paper trail, with credit cards, that kind of thing. And like you're saying, it should stay, I would imagine staying niche because it's almost, in some respects, cryptocurrency is a solution in looking for a problem. Yeah. You don't really need to do this, especially with all of the banking structures out there to do a lot of, I don't want to say legitimate, but other business, you know, if you want to do regular sure. business, you can do that so many different ways at this point. I remember, you know, way back when, this is looking, this is the wrong way I'm looking at the internet, but people were afraid to bank online, but people have gotten very comfortable with it now. So maybe a little too comfortable in some cases. Could be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, I think a large part of it is your philo- philosophy. If you're, if you're like a crypto anarchist, then this type of currency would have a very strong appeal, right? Like, uh, there, there's, I think there's an element with not, not every, but many Bitcoin enthusiasts that the, the, one of the strongest appeals is that it uh, isn't a state backed centralized unit of currency. Uh, it has this other kind of mystique to it that doesn't rely upon an, an authoritative force determining the value of that currency. And there's, that part of the appeal, and I can understand that, but I also understand that that's a part of an appeal that really just appeals to that small segment of the population. And not everyone shares those same uh, values. So I think that that, by its nature, will continue to limit cryptocurrency to its relatively small uh, population. Well, um, here's something that you and I have both worked in. YouTube videos. Uh, YouTube's changed a lot over the last several years. Do you think uh, the YouTube of 2021 will look remarkably different from the way it looks now? Are we going to have thousands of multi-channel networks out there? Or will it even be possible for an independent artist to upload something and have it see any sense, any sort of traction whatsoever? I think independent artists will still be able to upload things and things will go viral when they do or they'll be shared if it's good. I always think that great content rises to the top no matter what. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I was trying to figure out what is the role of YouTube. This is separate. I didn't even look at any any of your notes or questions. I was thinking about YouTube in the future. I thought the Internet in the future is going to be super fast. You're going to have a lot of video. You're going to see over-the-top solutions with cable companies. You're going to have a lot of this network television online and then you have YouTube, and I was trying to figure out what is it going to be. And the closest thing I could come up with is I could almost see YouTube becoming a network of sorts. They already have their own channels. Yep. So 
it would be its own network with its own channels, which is weird. I guess kind of like HBO, right? HBO's got one, two, three. They've got kids, all that kind of stuff. So I could see it going that way where it's – imagine an over-the-top service that's bundling in YouTube, which should theoretically be free. But maybe it's YouTube Red, a premium version that has the premium content available. That's where I really see it going because if television goes online entirely, online television should be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So I would think YouTube somewhat becomes a network where even though it's it's still generated by a lot of independents, there are obviously a lot of companies putting money into it. Every now and then you'll see a surprise hit, kind of like, I guess, if you think about it in the movie structure where you can have a low-budget hit happen with movies. Why not with television? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing to think about because I wouldn't have – really anticipated the multi-channel networks coming up. And multi-channel network, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, it's uh, the name pretty much gives it away. It's a, it's a network of different YouTube channels that have banded together to make kind of a unified business. So you may have uh, six or seven different channels all bundled together under one network where you can easily see the different individual channels within that network uh, each of those individual channels might be very different from one another. They may not be thematically linked at all. Uh, it could just very well be that they've banded together and mostly in an attempt to tap into the same promotional power so that uh, one independent creator can take advantage of an audience built by another creator. Uh, and uh, obviously, I, or I would argue that the more closely aligned the various channels are, at least in tone, if not content, uh, the easier it is to migrate some of that audience over so that they also adopt the new platforms. I don't know if that's going to be as strong a presence in 2021. Uh, I I almost see this being like another bubble, kind of like what I was saying with the app bubbles. Uh, I think we're going to see some multi-channel networks do just fine. They'll stick around. They may even grow. They may incorporate others. But uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot of them collapse. I just don't think – the online business is hard. Creating online content is not easy. It's not easy to do and it's really not easy to do successfully, <laughs> right? Like it's already – it's already got a barrier. Uh, the technology barrier has come way down. But to do high-quality content is already challenging. And then to have that content be discovered is growing increasingly challenging over time. Uh particularly when it comes to video. I mean, we've heard the stats about how there's more than, I don't know what it's up to now. Last I looked, and this was months ago, so I know it's out of date, was something like 108 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. So when you start looking at that volume, you realize the chances of being discovered out of that massive amount of stuff being put up every single minute are, are pretty pretty low. It's really, really a, a challenge. So I'm curious to see in 2021, if uh, that shakes out at all, if either people abandon YouTube, you know, people who are spending a lot of time and effort to try and get something discovered end up walking away from it if they don't meet with any success, or if it'll just be even crazier than it is now. And I honestly don't know. I could see it go either way. You just sparked my imagination here because I was thinking the way Google has invested in deep machine learning, the way Facebook has done the same thing, 
this idea that you just said, you know, hundreds of hours are being uploaded like every minute. Mm-hmm. The the idea that there's all of this content and the discoverability is really low. That's where all this d- deep machine learning makes a lot of sense in the back end. So if you're done watching a YouTube video on whatever you're watching it on the future, it will actually recommend something similar or some, maybe in style, maybe in comedy, maybe just an appearance, maybe something like that because the analysis of the content should be greater at that point where we this is actually a good problem to have having too much content to go through is actually awesome for mo- i would think any viewers like what do i pick i could pick anything yeah but that, that it does become very paralyzing in the fact you don't know what to pick yeah but if these algorithms get better if deep machine learning has figured out how what are the parts and components of this thing that you enjoyed we can give you another one i think that maybe that's the future of youtube networks that they have built these uh, these playlists essentially mm-hmm. for you and your interests based on your interests because as fast as the internet will get in five years and whether you have uh, net neutrality being a problem or not and all these other pro- concerns, when you're trying to consume it, if you can't find anything, it's a problem. I really think when that happens, we'll see an improvement on this deep machine learning where you will get content that makes sense for you at that time. Yeah, curation is a huge uh, problem, right? Like a like a challenge. Curation, curating huge amounts of uh, or going through an enormous amount of information in order to curate it and get the stuff that's most relevant to you. This is one of the biggest challenges that come with big data. Uh, the idea that yeah, you've got tons of information out there, and a lot of it is potentially useful in many different ways. But how do you actually sort through all of that to get the best out of what you have? Same sort of thing here that we're talking about, trying to find the the videos that are most going to resonate with you, whether it's from an entertainment perspective or being thought-provoking, whatever it might be. It also reminds me a lot of a Patton Oswalt routine where he talks about his TiVo going crazy because he, he used his TiVo to record a Western, and then his TiVo went nuts and started recording all the different programs that have horses in them because uh, it came to the conclusion that he must really like horses and uh, just shows you that machine learning, it, there is a process. <laughs> it's not always perfect right out of the gate. Uh, so a couple of other things I wanted to ask before we conclude this episode. Uh, this kind of ties into, again, something that we're both concerned with as as content creators on the Internet. What do you think the monetization of the Internet is going to look like in five years? We've been seeing web advertising uh, as the primary way for at least large companies to earn money off of creating content for the Internet. But we've also seen a lot of different reactions to web advertising from the rise of ad blockers to uh, discussions about what are the best practices. Do you think web advertising is going to remain the way that, that large uh, intent, uh, content creators are going to go? Do you think other methods like the Patreon method, like a subscriber method, are going to actually grow over the years? Or is there going to be something else? Like, how are we going to uh, make sure that we can pay for stuff so that people keep making the stuff we like? Yeah, this, is, this one's a really hard question because for years, people have been conditioned that you can get content online for free. Yeah. And then it's because there were ads on there. And then after that, it's like, wait a second, we don't need to see ads because we can use ad block. And then you realize, wait a second, this company isn't getting money, but I like this, this company. Can I just whitelist them? Should I do that? Or do I go to another site that reblogs it or not? So in the future, I'm expecting 
advertising isn't going anywhere. The old style, you know, ads, the actual banner ads, takeovers, that kind of stuff, that's going to be there no matter what. I'd imagine you'd see much more sponsored content, mm-hmm. uh, content that's somewhat harder for ad blockers to find as ads. Uh, I know Facebook's doing a push with that right now where they're trying to fight ad block plus trying to make sure that they have as much ads as they can on their sites. Right. Also, like we were talking about with mobile apps, that's an area where you can have a siloed application that an ad blocker wouldn't work on mm-hmm. in theory. So you might see it that way. I would hope, and I'm actually not hope, I actually think of a throwback concept of microtransactions where you are paying a couple of cents instead of having a subscription. But I see this this being the model for content in the future with advertising. You'll have your standard advertising. You'll also have your Patreon method of basically paying per month what you want. I could see a subscription thing on top of that and micropayments. In other words, allowing any single way to break the paywall with this. Either turn off your ad blocker or pay us two cents for this or give us a subscription for the year. I just see a lot of companies being very, very open to how their content is going to be received and not just sticking forever to this you must look at our banner ad. And here is an, a nice little other ad that says, you can't read this until you pay more money. Paywalls have worked for other bigger companies out there. I don't think that they should be as high for smaller places. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think uh, I think we're going to see the Patreon method get adopted by more and more smaller content creators, um, particularly those that are working on this as a passion project as opposed to it being like a... a uh, a a business business right like it's it, they want to make money off of it but they also are in it because this is something they truly want to do uh, I see a lot of more people going down that route um, I agree that we're going to see a lot of companies say look here are all the different ways that you can support us pick whichever way works best for you and then we will continue creating the stuff you like. I think that is probably the – I think it's going to take us a while to get there. But I think that is the best approach, uh, again, to just give those options to the consumer. And I agree with you that we have conditioned people to think that stuff on the internet is free somehow. Like it, it, it we just magically create it and somehow we're also able to pay rent and buy food uh, and that uh, it's all wonderful and we will continue to do so in perpetuity and we're never going to get evicted or starved to death. That's not the way the world works, unfortunately. Uh, so I think we're definitely going to see a lot more sponsored content. We're going to see some branded content, stuff that, uh, you know, we're going to see some growing pains with people experimenting with how do I create something that serves the brand that's sponsoring me, but also is of genuine value to the people listening so it doesn't end up becoming a very long commercial that people feel like they're fooled into consuming because they hate that. I don't know if you know that, Ayaz. People hate being tricked into watching a commercial. What's that? I couldn't hear you over my beautiful citizen what? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> right you know, yeah. I was thinking a while ago, it, it, we lived in a world where paying for music online sounded like the craziest thing. You could get it as much as you want. You could find it anywhere. Yeah. But if the cost gets low enough, then people, you saw that people changed their methods. They would pay per song. Now the subscription services are completely the way to go. Mm-hmm. So I think if the, if the business side figures it out and goes, look, we can't keep it going the way it is now. It's just not, not sustainable. 
there's a chance that people will relearn this and then go, yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take uh, this. Isn't, I really hate saying this, but I wouldn't just swipe a newspaper, right? Right, and there's content there, and there's nothing wrong with charging for content that you make. And I'm not just saying this as a content pr- producer. I say this as a content consumer. Sure, that I do pay for the stuff I, I, I want to see. Otherwise, how will people know? You basically vote with your dollars. Is my idea on that? Yeah, which is like people's idea, but it's it's going to take some time. It it does. There's just such inertia to not change anything yeah but well, well i mean motivates. you've got you've got billions of dollars wrapped up in an industry that uh is not known to be fast to react to changes and i'm talking about the the marketing industry in general advertising industry um which has its it's it's linked to pretty much everything we're talking about in this little little discussion uh and and yeah you, you can't expect it to change very quickly and yet the the wants of the customers are changing and, and that what they are willing to do changes and you have to react to that. I think, uh, you really hit on it. The idea that if you're, if the price is right and if it's easy enough to get, like, I think you have to have both of those things. You have to have the right price and you have to make it really, really easy for people to buy your stuff. Uh, DRM, was a huge problem that I think ended up being a big uh, negative for a lot of people for lots of different stuff, not just music, but, you know, uh, various software packages, that kind of thing, that as you make it more difficult for people to buy a legitimate copy of your product, they're going to go further to get illegitimate copies because they don't have to deal with all the mess that comes along with trying to buy something legally. Uh, so making, making as easy to get and at the right price, I think you're on to something. <laughs> I think there, I think there might be money in that. Um, and people are willing to support the stuff that they love if they feel like the value they get back is, uh, uh, of, of equal amount to what they're putting into it. You can't just ask people to pay for junk and expect it to go on forever. Um, I mean, it might work for the short term, but it's not really a long term strategy. You know, I have a lot of other questions that we wrote down, but this episode's going pretty long, so I just think I'm going to uh to to kind of end on one big question, which is about accessibility. Uh we've seen accessibility of the internet improve quite a bit over the last 5 years, but we still have a long way to go. More than half of the world's population does not really have access to the internet. So there are billions of people who do not have at least easy access to the Internet. Some of them might be able to get access with a great deal of effort, but you know, the more effort you have to spend, the, the smaller the returns are on actually getting that access. But we're seeing a lot of projects trying to change that. So things like uh, Google having a Project Loon and Facebook having its proposed satellite and drone program to uh, supply – uh, internet to lots of different parts of the world. Both of these companies have a vested interest in people getting access to the internet. It's not like it's purely altruistic. But do you think that by 2021 we're going to see near universal access to the internet? Eric Schmidt of uh, Google fame said back in 2013 he thought by 2020 everyone would have access. Do you think that's a little – do you think that's realistic or is that a little ambitious? I, I think – it's both, and considering how Google is as a company and Facebook, and as you mentioned, their vested interest in being relatively strong on this, I'm going to boldly say by 2021, yeah, there's going to be universal access, whether it's – the thing is about receiving it. So you can have 
the Earth covered an internet via balloon or satellite, whatever you want to use, the fact that hardware has gotten so cheap, like Android One phones, we're seeing stories about $5 cell phones. It wasn't so long ago that I was excited reading about the One Laptop Per Child project, mm-hmm. which at this point seems kind of, not antiquated, but kind of silly. Because how you, yeah, you can get so much more power now with phones and low end phones these days like oh well this is this is a piece of junk phone i wouldn't buy this but they have gotten so cheap and so available to so many different areas that it's the other half of the equation just having wireless and, and some kind of access to it is one thing but having the hardware out there i think that is going to get there by maybe 2021 i could see that happening where these devices are so cheap that it's just something you have you should have this at this point it's almost like a hand or well, this could be trouble, but like it's, it's like a hand. You want to make sure you have this device with you at all times or Swiss Army knife. You have to have it. And with Google and Facebook consistently going ahead. Now, I don't see Google and Facebook being like Alta Vista and uh, MySpace. They seem to have enough power behind them that they can keep going for a good another five years. Oh, you would they, say they're too big to fail? No, that's not what I'm saying here. <laughs> I think... I think they're, they're motivated enough and they are, there's another, uh, there's that company we talked about, uh, Comcast. Not to yeah. rag on them too much. Their method of change isn't what I see from Google or Facebook. Those well, two companies work to get more and more coverage and they're going for bigger goals than just the short term shareholder, uh, numbers. Right. Because with Comcast, what, what their strategy was, and this isn't a secret. I mean, I covered this in a, in a deep, episode series about how Comcast works, the Comcast story. Uh, the way that their company traditionally would grow is they would go out and buy other companies. They they weren't creating new markets. They were purchasing uh, the companies that were serving markets they weren't in yet. So uh, that's a very different strategy, as you point out, right? Because once you get to a point where you've bought up pretty much everyone you can buy without facing massive resistance on a on a regulatory side you can't you can't grow anymore you have to create you can't just buy other stuff and um really the comcast history was pretty much <laughs> uh, uh just stuck in that mentality of buy other companies that are already doing what we do and now we that those customers become our customers that's how you grow your customer base uh, this is a very different approach. I I love the idea of everyone having access by 2021. I mean, the implications of that are so far beyond just having the ability to finally access the Internet. We've seen the Internet play a, an incredibly important part in massive uh, historical moments throughout the last five years. I mean, the Arab Spring alone was such a huge story. And I imagine that we'll see more stories like that, particularly as access to the Internet becomes uh, closer to being universal. And I, I find that encouraging. I, I think there's going to be a lot of tumultuous problems along the way. But I find that when you get this level of communication, this um, incredibly powerful tool in people's hands, then amazing things can happen. Uh, not all of them involving videos of cute cats. That's just a bonus. But that's my own personal kind of optimistic view. Um, Ayaz, thank you so much for joining the show today and and sticking your neck out 
to look out and say, what's it going to be like in five years? I look forward in 2021 to calling you up and going over these results. Yeah, uh, wherever I, wherever I, I'll, I'll be, I'll have access to the internet, so it won't be a problem. That's true. Yeah, it won't matter. Like if you're taking a, a vacation in Antarctica, I know that I'll be able to have you uh, chat. Maybe have a couple penguins in the background. We'll have a hopefully conversation. My, hopefully, my connection doesn't freeze. Yeah, that's ah. that's great. That's great. Leave the puns to me, chucklehead. <laughs> All right, uh, Ayaz, please tell people where they can find your work. Yeah, you guys should go to CNET.com. We've got lots of great news, how-tos, reviews. Uh, you can also check out Top5.CNET.com if I want to promote Top5, which I do count down a fun CNET list every week at Top5.CNET.com. And if you want to hear Ayaz talk about stuff with me uh, in, a, in a format that's not safe for work, <laughs> you can always check out our podcast without pretense with uh, Eric Sandine, our, our, our third host, um, but it is not, it is not a, not a polite show at all, but no, but it does not. exist. It is a thing that happens. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the best description ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we named it, uh, this year in 2016, we named it the best podcast of 2014. So that tells you all you need to know about that show. Uh, all right. So guys, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch with me. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those locations is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 